This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which we have to start out today, unfortunately, with a bit of sad news. Someone who's made several appearances on this program passed away this past week. That would be my neighbor in Sacramento, Lino Carollo. Lino was a great guy, a good neighbor, and a darn fine guest here on this program because in the past, among other things, he'd been a teacher for many years in the school system in our state capital. But at one point he had a job out at the Aerojet Corporation out uh, in Folsom and had some very interesting stories to tell about, uh, well, building rockets that took astronauts to the moon. What I think we're going to do on today's program is air two of those segments uh, where Lino shared some of his experiences with us. We will do that basically in the second half of today's program. And we want to also note by a way of follow-up that uh, Michael O'Connell, who was also a good friend of this program making several appearances, uh, made quite a name for himself as a stand-up comedian, although, as he said, he's not exactly a stand-up because Michael was confined to a wheelchair. He did Riley point out to us and others that the nice thing about that was that, uh, well, no hecklers. Michael left us uh, last month, but there will be a memorial to him um, this Saturday, August 27th. It'll be at the Roseville Theater Arts Academy, 241 Vernon Street in Roseville. And if you knew Michael or was a fan or or um, a friend, then you probably should attend. I guess it'll be uh, between 4 and 6 p.m. with um, an open mic night to to follow after that. And someone else I want to note the passing of. We normally do obituaries in the third segment. We're starting off today with three. Um, Warren Hinkle, the legendary journalist from San Francisco, passed away in the last couple of days. He was one of the co-founders, I believe, or at least one of the major contributors to Ramparts Magazine, which cut quite a figure in America in the 1960s. They basically uh, were investigative journalists doing their best to tell it like it was and served as an inspiration to people like David Talbot of Salon.com and the many readers of the magazine. And we were privileged in this program to have had uh, several people at one point or another who worked for Ramparts. Um, William Turner, uh, who had the distinction of being a a former FBI agent, uh, spoke with us on more than one occasion. As did the legendary Robert Shear, who uh, was yet another illustrious employee of Ramparts back in the 1960s. We went to Bill Turner's house many years ago to, to, to do one of our interviews, and at one point he offered me a whole bunch of uh, back copies of Ramparts, and I foolishly didn't uh, take him up on that. But uh, I probably should check with the Turner family, because those would be some pretty cool things to have. They, like, they did some very hard-hitting stuff. And Warren Hinkle is to be uh, looked back on fondly for the great work that he did. At any rate, we're going to jump around a bit on today's program. Oh, big surprise, I know. So we're going to jump from some notable figures who have contributed to uh, this magazine and to investigative journalism and talk a little bit about astronomy. I do hope, dear listener, you will go out and look to the southeast after sunset to see if you cannot observe Mars, Saturn, and the star Antares almost lined up in a row. They were almost exactly lined up a night or two ago, but they're still pretty close and it still makes quite a sight in the southwestern sky. I mean, you really can't miss it. They're the three brightest things up there. Go take a look. And those of you who listen to this program on a regular basis know that we do love cool space stuff. 
And uh, there's probably no cooler space news we've reported in recent years, I think, than the startling conclusion of some astronomers that the very closest star to our solar system, uh, of course, that's not including our friend the Sun, but at any rate, the second closest star to planet Earth, which goes by the name of Proxima Centauri. And yes, sometimes you hear that Alpha Centauri is the closest star to us. And, well, let's just say the Alpha Centauri system does uh, make the grade. But there are three stars in the system. There's, there's a double star, which you see when you go down to Australia, the brightest star in the, con- in the constellation Centaur, hence Alpha Centauri. It's really a double star. Look at it through a telescope, and you see that it's got one star that's almost a dead ringer for our sun, and a companion star that's a little cooler and a little more orange. About a tenth of a light year closer to us is Proxima Centauri. It's not visible to the naked eye. In fact, there is not a red dwarf in the sky that you can see without a telescope. Nevertheless, as I say, it's the closest at 4.2 light years. That's still a fair piece away, 25 trillion miles if you're counting. But uh, if you want to go visit the next star, that's, that's, that, that'd be the place to go. Well, scientists studying the star determined that there's a wobble uh, in its uh, spectrum, which tells us that something is pulling on it. And if they did their math right, and I hope they did, it turns out that something is a planet, a planet even bigger than the Earth. They figure it's at least 1.3 times the size of the Earth. And as an added bonus to this whole story, not only does the closest star to us have a planet, and not only is that planet, you know, somewhat Earth-like and not not a gas giant like Jupiter, but it also apparently orbits in the Goldilocks zone around Proxima Centauri. Now, of course, the news media is reporting this as potentially habitable planet (laughs) close to Earth, which is a little bit of a stretch. But nevertheless, this is kind of the trifecta. The closest star, a planet like the Earth, and one that's orbiting in the right spot to have temperatures on its surface comparable to us. Now, because Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf, it's a lot, a lot dimmer than our sun, which means to get the same warmth off of this rather cool uh, flame, you have to be a lot closer. In fact, in this case, you're apparently 0.05 astronomical units away, which if you translate that, it works out to like four point something million miles. It's really tight. Tight orbit goes around the star every 11 days. And uh, the search for life is, I think, dimmed a little bit by the fact that this star, like so many red dwarfs, is what they call a flare star, meaning that it goes about its business for the most part, looking like a little, you know, ember in the sky. But every so often, all hell breaks loose. And thanks to some kind of magnetic activity in the star, probably analogous to what we have with sunspots, Its surface erupts and radiation blasts out and I'm sure cooks whatever would be on the planet, like putting it in a microwave. But that said, this is some pretty cool news. I'm quite stoked by this and and I hope that, uh, I hope, dear listener, that you are as well. And let's hope we get some follow-up news as uh, as they come out with yet more data. I'm sure that there's telescopes all over the world now are pointing up at Proxima Centauri to see what else we might learn. All right, let's jump back to planet Earth here and talk about um, miscellaneous things. I want to mention a piece from the Tribune News Service. That would be the Oakland Tribune, a piece by Robert Duffer, um, which appeared in the Mercury News last week. And the title was, Why the Road Atlas Still Matters. 
The author starts out by saying, On a recent road trip with my kids, I couldn't find an atlas, and when I asked around at service stations, convenience stores, and online, people responded as if I were seeking out a cassette player. My own brood pointed out that there was a map in the dashboard, and there was a map in my smartphone, and there were maps in their tablets and on their built-in seat-back consoles. I was determined to teach the grade schoolers the joy of the Atlas before it goes the way of the manual transmission, the V8 engine, and the CD player. To that I say, here, here. I, I just think it's good to have some particular mode of determining where you are that doesn't require electricity, because electricity can fail you. And uh, this reminds me of a story I was told a month or two ago by a fireman who was coming by where I worked. I think he was inspecting the, I don't know, the fire extinguishers or something. And uh, he got to talking about uh, <laughs> the people that are now driving around in fire trucks that are supposed to save you if, you know, your house is burning down. And being that my office manager is himself an ex-fireman, we had quite a spirited discussion about some of this. What really struck me was he said, yeah, you know, they were bringing back the other day, they were bringing back one of the, uh, one of the uh, trucks and uh, taking it out of service. And he, he asked, what's the deal? And they said, oh, the GPS isn't working. Fireman telling the story was a bit amazed that uh, they were taking a truck out of service because the GPS wasn't working because he pointed out to the driver that in their back seat, they had a pile of uh, road atlases, maps, that would tell them exactly where they needed to go. And their response was, well, we don't know how to read those. So yeah, I would say that Mr. Robert Duffer would do well to teach his children how to actually use something that has, you know, it involves paper and maps printed on paper. I have to admit that having GPS and being able to direct you is, is a cool thing if it's working, but don't you think it's good to have a backup? Let's say your house is on fire and the GPS happens to go down as the fire truck is heading your way. Wouldn't it be good if they could just reach in the back seat, figure out where they are and figure out where you are so they can come pour some water on the fire? I think so. And of course, this advancement of technology is, is a twin-edged sword, you know. I mean, this idea that you're going to just rely on GPS is kind of like when I went into Fry's here a few days back because I heard that they were going to discontinue the making of VHS cassette players. Now I have a large collection of old VHS things, some of which were recorded off the air, some of which could be converted to DVD at great expense and time, and yada, yada. But wouldn't it be nice just to have something you could still play this supposed antiquated technology with? Uh, you know, I mean, seems to me that'd be a good plan. Anyway, went into Fry's, went to buy one, went over to the TV section, and asked if you had, they had a DVD player that also played VHS, because that's what you, you know, that would be ideal. I have a couple of those. One's broken. That's why I'm having to go replace the VHS part of it. But the guy looked at me like I was, you know, maybe asking him for an 8-track, or maybe, maybe an old Edison wax cylinder. I got to say, it reminded me nothing so much as the movie Idiocracy, where <laughs> the protagonists ask people if they have any water. And the guy's response is, what, like in the toilet? Because as we all know, Brano is what you should be drinking. It's got electrolytes. So anyway, you know, reluctantly I had to go home and confront the fact that I was, I, I tried to call other places that might have one in stock, and I gave up. I did what we all do now. I ordered one on the web. It seems to me we're losing a lot of jobs this way. Fries, by the way, looked looked like a ghost town. <laughs> Nobody in the place. Perhaps because they appeared to have rearranged everything that was on the north side to put it in the middle, and the stuff that was in the middle was in the south side, and it was just a big mess. 
That's what we do in this program. We make observations about stuff. Rye observations, we hope. Amusing observations, we hope. But lest I get too in the irritated mode, why don't we just cut directly at this point to our joke for today. A joke which thankfully was sent to us by a sometime listener, Barb. According to this joke, which is also an anecdote, allegedly, according to this uh, story sent to us, in a recent linguistic competition held in London, supposedly attended by some of the world's best linguists, a man won a competition. I, I don't know whether this is legit or not, but suppose, as the story goes, a man named Samdar Bulgobin, who is Guyanese, won, I guess because of his superior knowledge of the language, which he demonstrated in the following exchange. The question was put to him, how do you explain the difference between complete and finished? They were seeking a way that was easy to understand. Supposedly the judges noted that some people say there is no difference between complete and finished. By way of reply, Mr. Balgobin said, When you marry the right woman, you are complete. When you marry the wrong woman, you are finished. To which he added, and when the right one catches you with the wrong one, you are completely finished. All right, if we're going to use that for our joke and anecdote, let's use the following as both our quip and our quote. It comes from Dr. Seuss. He once said, if you can see things out of whack, then you can see how things can be in whack. And doggone it, well, let's go back into outer space, shall we? But uh, before we get into space, let's go up into the upper atmosphere. Apparently, according to New Scientist magazine, the U.S. Air Force has plans to improve radio communication over long distances by detonating plasma bombs in our upper atmosphere using a fleet of micro-satellites. Yes, doesn't that sound like a good idea? The article notes that since the earliest days of radio, we have known that signals that cannot be picked up by day may be heard clearly at night from hundreds of kilometers away. This comes down to changes in our ionosphere, a layer of charged particles in the atmosphere that starts about 60 kilometers up. That's 36 miles for those using the English system. The curvature of the Earth does stop most ground-based radio signals from traveling more than about 70 kilometers or 42 miles without a boost. But by bouncing between the ionosphere and the ground, they can zigzag for much greater distances. Now, this idea of the U.S. Air Force uh, putting plasma up there, and plasma is kind of a fourth state of matter. It's not liquid, solid, or gas. It's You can define plasma as a state where, well, an ionized gas. Some of the electrons have been stripped off the atoms, and it's kind of a, a cloud, I guess you'd say. At any rate... Um, when a meteor comes crashing through the upper atmosphere, you're seeing a brief burst of plasma. You can buy those toys in the science stores that generate uh, enough uh, little, little miniature lightning bolts. That's plasma. Lightning is, is sort of a form of plasma. At any rate, the article mentions HARP. You perhaps have heard about this, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program in Alaska. Now, this is the first piece I've seen that describes what it does. They say it stimulates the ionosphere with radiation from ground-based antennas to produce radio-reflecting plasma. So there you have it. People are wondering what that HARP uh, facility up in Alaska has been doing, and apparently the Air Force is using it to help communicate via radio around the world. Oh, well, okay, but this idea of using little micro-satellites to put more plasma up there, well, we're, we're just skeptical that that's going to turn out to be a good idea. But anyway, let's keep going up higher into space. In fact, let's go way the hell out into the Kuiper Belt. 
The Kuiper Belt um, is, of course, that system of rather small bodies, generally rather small bodies, orbiting past Neptune. Uh, it's got one large object in it, which for a while was considered a planet. That would be Pluto. The debate still goes back and forth over whether, whether Pluto is a planet or... It's certainly a Kuiper Belt object. Is it a planet? I don't know. Mike Brown, the discoverer of Eris, which is just a hair bigger than Pluto, uh, says no, none of these are planets. They're Kuiper Belt objects. Well, apparently the third largest one has now been found. Uh, it turned out to be a lot bigger than they thought because it's very dark. Its surface reflectivity is just like 9%, which is probably something akin to, like, coal. It currently goes by the catchy name of Dwarf Planet 2007-OR10. And yes, doesn't that just cry out for a naming contest? They thought it was just under 800 miles in diameter, and now they've got it just about 1,000 miles in diameter, which makes it uh, about the same size as the Dwarf Planet series, which currently has the Dawn spacecraft orbiting it, and it's going to keep orbiting it and send more pictures back. Anyway, big object out there, and there's going to be more, and we're going to get a look at one of the smaller ones when the New Horizons spacecraft, which after making its pass over Pluto, was repurposed to go take a close look at another such object, and that'll happen, I think, in January of, what is it, 2019? Something like that. Anyway, a guy that was assisting Michael Brown named Konstantin Batgen, you may have heard him on uh, Science Friday with Ira Flato last Friday, have discovered two really screwball objects out there in the Kuiper Belt. Now, most of the things that orbit around our sun, well, you can think of, you think of the whole plane of the solar system as being kind of like a phonograph record. Most things are orbiting very much in a disk, a flat disk. If you looked at it from, from a distance, you would see that everything is lined up. Well, most everything. They've now found what's being called a delinquent object out there in the Kuiper Belt. It goes by the name of Niku. And it's way tilted to the plane that most everything orbits in. In fact, it's tilted more than 90 degrees, which means it's more than operating at right angles to everything else. Take it 20 more degrees extra, which means if you think about it, it's kind of orbiting backwards. I don't know if you can visualize this, but I mean, up to 90 degrees out of the plane of, of the solar system, it's kind of traveling the same way we are on planet Earth. But if you go past 90 degrees, well, it's kind of going the other way. The possibility that... This undiscovered world out there they're calling Planet Nine, which they say may be 10 times as massive as Earth, might be out there past the Kuiper Belt, throwing some of these smaller objects in these strange orbits. Well, they did the math on this one to conclude that, well, maybe, but maybe not. Anyway, when we learn, when, when we learn more about Niku, you'll be the first to hear about it. And it may well be that we have here on Earth a chunk from the Kuiper Belt, finally. About a decade ago, a big fireball streaked over... British Columbia, and chunks of this meteorite, which was very crumbly and carbonaceous and not like the most, most of the hard stones you can buy uh, if you're inclined to buy meteorites or watching the Meteorite 100 TV show, etc., etc., it landed on Tagish Lake, and because it landed in the winter on ice, they were able to go out and gather quite a few chunks of it and preserve it in a pretty, um, pretty good state. Well, they've analyzed it, and according to a new scientist, it, its composition is nothing like other space rocks. Now, after tantalizing us with that, they didn't explain exactly what they meant, but we're going to try and look into it. Now, if you, if you like to collect meteorites, and I, I have a few of them, you can get the kind that are iron-nickel, which, you know, are very heavy. They're, they're basically metal. You can get ones that are stony with high metal contents, and you can buy a third type 
carbonaceous chondrites, which are the rarest, they have kind of the texture and weight of like a charcoal briquette. It's hard to believe they survived a plunge through Earth's atmosphere at a high rate of speed, but uh, once in a while they do. And um, this apparently is something akin to that, but more than that I can't say, but we'll see if we can't do a follow-up on this one. All right, enough of space. Let's go back down to Earth. And, uh, yeah, you know, you're listening to Radio Parallax when you get the kind of sequence of events from going from, you know, space rocks to what I'm about to talk about. As mentioned numerous times in this program, we love New Scientist. It's our favorite uh, science magazine. And uh, because it's so well written, it's, you know, it's just, it's very accessible. They have good writers who really try and boil things down so you can understand them. It's, it's a gift. But one of the favorite sections we have is the, the last word where people ask questions to the magazine and then they print the answers. Um, <laughs> somebody asked in the last issue or two, what do humans taste of? I've heard that it's a little bit like pork, not that I wanted to find out, but if it is, why? And if it isn't, why do, what do we taste of? Also, why do different meats, say lamb, beef, chicken, and pork, taste different? Fair question. And answering it was someone named Hazel Rusman from London, who noted that apparently in parts of the Pacific where human flesh was eaten, it was known as long pig. Hazel notes that pigs and apes are both forest animals, and their way of dealing with predators is to run for cover. Apes run for the nearest tree, and they climb it. Pigs head for the nearest thicket and hide in it. Both maneuvers require some intense but short-lived muscle exertion. On the other hand, cattle and sheep are animals in the open country. They escape from predators by outrunning them. This requires endurance, so their muscles are rich in myoglobin to provide onboard oxygen supplies. The myoglobin makes their meat red and gives it quite a different flavor to that of forest animals, presumably in the case of pigs and humans, the other white meats. Anyway, I got no way to top that, I think, so we're just going to jump into, at this point, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week and probably most of the weeks of the last year for cattle farmers in India because they apparently are working overtime to satisfy the country's growing thirst for cow urine. As you probably know, Hindus consider the cow sacred and an increasing number believe that drinking female cattle pee can heal dozens of maladies. So it is that distilled cow urine now sells for as much as milk. So farmers eager to harvest every last drop hire attendants to monitor the beasts. Said Vikash Chandra Gupta, The most difficult task is to collect cow urine because how do you know when the animal will actually do it? He added, Attendants take clues from the animal's movements and try to identify patterns in urination. And you think you have a tough job. It was, on the other hand, a bad week. Last week for crooks with smartphones after the Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department announced it had found one of the rarest Pokemon Go characters, which goes with the name of Charizard, in its headquarters. 
They invited a list of 500 people to come and catch it. Turned out all 500 were wanted fugitives. And no, we don't have any follow-up on whether any of them were dumb enough to come to, <laughs> to the police headquarters to play Pokemon Go. But we're inclined to believe that some did. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for art appreciation with the news that a 91-year-old woman in Germany was questioned by police after she filled in the blank spaces of a crossword puzzle hanging at a Nuremberg museum. In doing so, she vandalized a $116,000 work of art. Yes, apparently the 1965 piece by avant-garde artist Arthur Kopeck looks like an empty crossword grid and is displayed next to a sign that reads, Insert Words. Following instructions, the woman used her ballpoint pen to scribble in answers, which apparently horrified the nearby guards, which apparently were asleep at the switch up till this point. Said museum director Ava Krauss, charges were unlikely because, quote, the old lady didn't mean any harm, unquote. And no, we have no word on what her entries were on the crossword puzzle. But if you put an avant-garde work of art up in a museum with a sign next to it that says, insert words, well... I mean, who's the knucklehead? All right, let's just do a couple final items here. Uh, apparently, there's a shark up in Greenland. Oh, there are a lot of sharks up in Greenland of a, of a species called the Greenland shark that's pretty old. In fact, they now think this species represents the world's longest living vertebrate. The previous record, if you're keeping score, was 211 years old, which was a bowhead whale. They found at least one Greenland shark they're estimating now has lived at least 272 years. They think the shark may be as old as 500, which means this shark was swimming up there near Greenland before there was a United States of America. I mean, this shark goes back to at least the time when George Washington was 12. Now, for those of you skeptical about the aging process, the new scientist, of course, noted that it was once thought to be impossible to age sharks because their skeletons made of cartilage lack the calcified growth rings of hard-boned vertebrates. But So these guys did it a different way. They, they focused on traces of radiation in the shark's eyes left over from nuclear bomb tests in the 50s and 60s. And no, we don't know enough to question their methodology here, but I hope they're right. And while we have to confess, due to our own inadequacies, it's rare in this program that we make any comment upon art exhibits, except sometimes in a jocular way when they're defaced. But, uh, but I was struck by, by a piece, naturally a new scientist, that seems to be the, uh, the magazine providing most of today's program, uh, a little piece commenting upon what's called the Black Friday exhibit at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. It's running through the 31st of October, and it's about malls. And I have to confess, due to my own inadequacies in the art appreciation department, I'm not able to comment upon most of what's in this piece. But what really struck me was the intro, which I'll just read. It was once a uniquely American phenomenon, the Gruen Transfer, named for Victor Gruen, the Austrian-born architect who designed the first indoor climate-controlled shopping mall, is what occurs when people enter a space designed to be visually disorienting, confusing them into unplanned consumption. The desire to buy a birthday card, say, is transferred deliberately and against their will to very different items such as an iced mochaccino or a smartphone cover. And the second you think about it, well, isn't that how malls operate? 
you walk in to buy a couple things, and there's so much there in this casino-like environment. There's colorful displays here. You're going up escalators. It's a, it's a veritable indoor Disneyland of shopping. And isn't that all, you know, terribly deliberate? Well, yeah, I'm sure it is. Doesn't it get you to buy more stuff? Well, the spread of malls all around the world would seem to prove, yeah. Anyway, if you, any of you go to New York and go to the Whitney Museum, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and see what you learned about malls and the art of malls. We'd like to know. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a break.